You, last time we were together, we, we left David hanging with all of his shame and his guilt. If you remember, because um, we talked about uh, Bathsheba and his adultery and how he had Uriah murdered. And, and so David is in this situation, this bad situation. And now tonight, we're going to be talking about the kind of the fallout from that. But, you know, as we look at David, uh, w- one of the things that you see and we've seen over the last several weeks is that he was just this multifaceted enigma. And, you know, he had so many different sides. There were so many different facets to him. It, it was like the, uh, you may have heard the story about the elephant being described by the four blind men. You ever hear that story? The one blind man uh, touches the elephant's side and he says, oh, an elephant's like a wall. That's what an elephant's like. And the, another man, uh, blind man touches his leg and says, no, 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 you're wrong. The elephant is like a tree. And then another one, another one touches the trunk and says, no, you're both wrong. An elephant's more like a serpent. That's what it's more like. And then the last one touches the tail and says, no, 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 an elephant's like a broom. That's what it's like. And then none of them are wrong, but none of them are really right. Uh, because they're all seeing different parts of the elephant and they're blind to the other parts. And, and David, uh, at this point in David's life, his, his complexity is confusing because you ask yourself, what exactly was David? Well, he was a shepherd, a politician, a leader. He was a rebel guerrilla leader. He was a hired mercenary working for the enemy. He was a unifier. He was a psalm writer. He was a husband. He was an adulterer, and he was a murderer. He was all those things. So the question is, as we talked about in the last study, how could David, this Old Testament hero, have his innocent, loyal friend killed just to cover up adultery? You know, I mean, a night of passion is one thing, but to commit murder merely to save yourself the shame and embarrassment of a pregnancy, that's sin at a whole different altitude. You know what I'm saying? So who, who is this David whose name has been made great in both religious and secular circles throughout history? He has, another, another, he has an affair, gets another man's wife pregnant, had her husband killed and covered up the entire thing by quickly marrying the grieving widow. And so surely by this time, after doing these things and marrying Bathsheba so that he could cover it up, he's, it's still all about covering it up. And he, he must have thought to himself, finally... Finally, I can put this behind me. I've swept it under the rug. Because what began began as a typical evening rooftop stroll to enjoy the Jerusalem sunset from the highest point in town ended up as a murder of one of the king's most loyal soldiers. And and David would would never have wished that this entire episode would have ever happened. He would, he would, if you'd asked him years before, months before, he probably would have said, I would never do such a thing. But now it's finally, in his eyes, it's finally over. Uriah is dead. David had married the the young widow after an abbreviated period of mourning. The people of Israel evidently accepted that the baby was conceived in marriage. And David, he's just relieved. Got away with it. Surely, he was thinking, the whole dark episode was over. You have this intense activity, the funeral, the, the wedding, and at last the birth of a royal baby. And all of those things came together to help David put the sins out of his mind. Have you ever noticed that sometimes people do a lot of things and get very active uh, because they don't want to think about the one thing that they need to think about? 
Well, for the most part, David, with all this activity, must have thought it was finally behind him. It was sad. It was regrettable. He, he wished he had never done it, but it was over. However, I know human nature. There was something else. I guarantee apprehension gnawed at the corners of his mind because every time he hugged his new wife or every time he held his new baby, he wondered deep inside if somehow, someday, is this truth going to come out? Under the surface, there is this nagging guilt. David was a, a man of God who had committed a horrible sin. He, he buried it and apparently had fooled all of Israel. The guilt must have been overwhelming at times. Every, every time he passed the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was, what went through his mind? Or every time he sat down with his lyre and he, and he began to think, I'm going to write a new psalm today. How do you write a psalm when you're carrying this load of guilt on your mind? It must have been there. And at times, David perhaps wished he, he could have invited his younger self in to sing to him to put him to sleep the way that he used to sing and put Saul to sleep. You know, you talk about guilt. There's a lot of psychologists today that will tell you that guilt is only, only a destructive force and it should be avoided at all costs. But the reality is that guilt is a gift from God. It's, it's by God's grace, he burdens us with guilt in order to open us up and to prepare us to hear his correct correction. Guilt is actually an instrument of God to drive us toward grace. That sense of knowing that, that you have done wrong, it's not there because God hates you. It's there because God loves you. You know, someone, uh, it, it's really proof that God loves us too much to leave us alone. I mean, any parent that you know that refuses to address issues in their child's life, but they don't want to mess with correcting them, if they refuse to correct them, you would say that parent does not love their child. Wouldn't you? Because you know that they're setting their child up for a, a devastation in the future. And, and, and God is no, he's a better father than I'll ever be. And, and here's what I know is that when he, when he does this work in our lives, he, he, uh, uh, it's, it's proof that he loves me too much just to let it go. You know, I, there was an old Baptist preacher, Mickey Bonner was his name. Julie will remember Mickey Bonner. Uh, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but uh, he, I heard him preach a few times and great, great communicator, great teacher. But one of the things that he used to say that, that I still remember to this day, he said, uh, one of the ways that you know you're really saved is that you can't get away with a thing. You can't get away with a thing. What I mean by, what he means by that is just simply this, that if, if the Lord did not care about you, he would just let you go. In fact, when you read Romans chapter one, that's really the wrath of God. The wrath of God is when he turns you over to your sin and says, fine, you can have it, but you'll suffer the consequences of your sin. That's the wrath of God. We think of wrath as, you know, earthquakes and tornadoes, you know, the wrath of God being poured out. But really the wrath of God is when he says, all right, you can do it. You can do whatever you want. I'll give it to you. You can have it. I won't bother you. You can do what you want, but you will bear the consequences of your sin. And, and, and God loves us so much that he's not willing to just let us go. 
and, and the, the reality is that, that sin doesn't just go away if we ignore it or if we try to bury it. it. The reality is when we try to bury it, it becomes toxic. You know, years ago, uh, industrialists, and uh, they didn't know that what, what happened. They, they would take their toxic waste and they would take it somewhere out there and bury it somewhere. And they didn't know that it would leak into the groundwater and cause problems down years later. But that's exactly what sin does inside of us. When we bury it, it doesn't go away. All it does is fester and, gets, and, and just becomes something that, that is toxic and leaks into every part of our lives. Well, David, at this point in time, I'm sure he thought he had avoided the worst. You know, I should never have done it. I feel terrible about it, but at least, at least it's behind me. And I'm sure he thought that. But then Nathan the prophet came to the palace. In 2 Samuel 12, David's in the, in the throne room and somebody says, Your Majesty, Nathan the prophet is here and he wants to see you. He says he has a word from God for you. I mean, what must have shot through his mind when he heard Nathan the prophet was there? Because have you ever noticed that somebody, when, they, when they've got guilt in their life, that they act guilty? And they naturally think that, you know, it's like somebody that's, that's done something illegal. When they, when they see a cop car goes by, go by, they're naturally, oh no, oh no, they're on to me. And so David, what must have gone through his mind at that moment? He, he's been avoiding God because that's what we do when we're, when we're carrying unrepentant sin. So Adam did. We're, this, we're just, you know, we haven't changed anything over the centuries. Adam sinned, and what did, what did he and Eve do? When God came to walk through the garden, they went, they went and hid. And that's what we do. Our tendency is to avoid God and to run from God. Now, what he wants us to do, he wants us to understand his grace and understand him so well that in those moments, instead of running from God, we'll run to him. You know, I, I always want my girls to, uh, to be honest with me. And when they do something wrong, and I think Aaron will back this up, it's a lot worse to try to cover it up. Don't you think? Because when you, when you get found out after you've tried to cover it up, it's just way worse. And, 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 and we need to learn that with God. But David, here he is. He's been avoiding God. He's in the throne room, and, and, and Nathan's on the way in, and he's been living a lie. He's, he's sick with guilt. We know that it's been eating at him because uh, we're going to read Psalm 51 in a few minutes. But in that Psalm, he says it's been like, a, it, it basically the translation would be like, it's been like a cancer eating away at my bones, this thing inside of me. And now about a year, maybe a little less after that night with Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet's at his front door and wants to have a word. Now, we don't even have to know David at this point to understand what was going on inside of him. We can just look at ourselves. If we were in David's shoes, imagine, you know, you hear Nathan's a prophet's there, and all of a sudden, our hearts might beat a little faster. We start breathing a little, a little more shallow, and everything around us starts to stand, stand still. The, the sweat starts beating up on our forehead, and, and all of a sudden, that adrenaline goes through us. Oh, no, oh, no, what's going on? He's here. He, does he know? And, and for the, in that moment, you know, David is facing this, and, 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 and Nathan comes before him, and I can just picture David, what do you want, prophet? This apprehension, not sure what's going on. And, and then to David's great relief, Nathan 
doesn't want to talk to the king about Bathsheba or Uriah. Instead, he just simply tells a story about something that happened in his kingdom. He said, King David, I think you should know about what, what has taken place. He told him, he said, there were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. And the rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. And the poor man owned nothing but one little lamb. And he raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. And it ate from the, that man's own plate and drank from his own cup. And he cuddled it like a, like a baby daughter. And then one day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. And instead of killing an animal from his own flock or his own herd, he took that poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. You know, here's the funny thing. Uh, This is the funny thing about human nature in general. When you feel guilty about something that's hidden in your own life, and then God shines the light of exposure on the sin of somebody else besides you, there are a couple things that happen. First of all, you're relieved that the light is not shining on you. Inside you'll be thinking, whew, I'm glad it's them and not me. You know, I mean, I remember when I was a little boy growing up and, and I, I knew that I had done something wrong and my parents uh, discovered something about one of my brothers. <laughs> I, I felt no compassion for my brothers. I was just, I was just, whew, I'm glad it's them. I'm glad it's them, not me this time. But the other thing that happens is when you're walking around with that guilt and God shines a light of exposure on the sin of somebody else, not only are you relieved that it's somebody else, but often that person is, you are the most outraged person in the room. Have you ever known somebody living in sin? And then they look at somebody else's sin and they're outraged at their sin and you just want to say, well, hello. You know, the lights are on, but nobody's home here. And, 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 you know, they're, they're the kind of person that, I can't believe they did that. How could they do this? You know, this is why, this is what happens, you know, when you see uh, preachers that, that uh, preach hard and heavy, specifically say, you know, on sexual sin, and they just hit it hard, harder than anybody you've ever heard. And then later they get caught and find out that they've been deal- living in that sin themselves. Well, it's because they're, they feel guilty. And so they project that and they begin condemning everybody else. Because if I can shine the light on your sin, then I can keep ignoring mine. And so uh, ultimately, you know, of course, it's just mind games. It's self-deception. Uh, and furthermore, it doesn't work for very long. Uh, the guilt is always there. No matter, no, right underneath that, you know, that mental rug under which, it's, under which it's been carefully swept, it's still there. You can't get away from it. You're going to deal with it all your life. It's going to keep festering. It, it will not be denied. It'll keep gnawing away like little termites just beneath the hardening surface of our sin. A story such as Nathan's gives us a moment's relief. David had a moment's relief there. He's like, oh, okay, it's not me. He wants to talk about this guy. And, and, and there it is, that guilt again, re- refusing to shut its bothersome mouth. And in the end, of course, as we said, guilt is not the enemy of the soul, but it's really the enemy of our carefully constructed system of denial and defense. And God is, our guilt is the instrument 
of God to burst through the outer walls and storm the inner, inner chambers of the heart, forcing sin to the surface, dredging it up and dragging it out before our horrified eyes. Uh, and there at last, by the grace of God, we face our sin for what it is. And now denial is being denied and we must face the truth just like David had to face the truth. And it was not because it, God hated him. We, God does not make us face the truth because he hates us enough to make us feel guilty. He does it because he loves us enough to he wants us to be free from it so he loved david and david's and nathan's story to david on one hand it's this wonderful relief to david on the other hand this guilt that he has is built up suddenly shows itself up with this and he is genuinely outraged he's genuinely outraged the king overflowing with this pent-up guilt, pounds his fist on the table and pronounces his sins. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. He can't get away with taking this poor man's lamb. He must restore the sheep fourfold, and then after that, he will pay with his life. I mean, for that moment, can you imagine in the courtroom in silence, wow, this is heavy stuff going on here. And then in the silence, Nathan boldly puts a quick end to that silence he points straight into the face of the king's face his finger into the king's face and the prophet shouts you are the man do you imagine that you're the one who stole the lamb, King David. I know what you did. God revealed to me your affair with Bathsheba, your murder of Uriah the Hittite. If anyone deserves to die right now, it's you, King David. Can you imagine the shock, the utter horror among those that are in the room? <gasps> what is he doing? You, you can't talk to a king like that. I imagine Joab, you know, he was there. I imagine his hand went to the hilt of his short sword. You know, because Joab was, he was always ready to kill. And he would have taken old Nathan the prophet's head off with a nod from David. And, and he would have slept like a baby that night. Wouldn't have bothered him a bit. All David had to do was snap his fingers and say, Joab. And, and, and Joab is going to be happy to plunge his sword right into Nathan's heart. N nobody talks to a king like that. Not unless they want it to be the last words that they say. And, and David is burdened with guilt over the murder of this innocent man. But Joab, he certainly isn't. He'll gladly, he'll gladly open that prophet up and sleep like a baby but to everyone's surprise David waves Joab off motioning him to stand at ease and David drops his head in his hands and says you're right I did everything you just said I have sinned against the Lord now can you imagine how scriptures would read today if David had looked at Nathan and looked him in the face and said, you old fool, you don't know what you're talking about. He's all yours, Joab. Because he could have. He had the power to continue living in denial, and that would have changed everything. In fact, I believe it would have been the end of David. I believe that God would have said, you are going to be removed from the throne just the way I removed Saul from the throne. In the crisis, though, the king's real character began to shine through instead of angry denial he said you're right i did it now here's what i want you to understand confession does not excuse the sin it certainly doesn't make it magically okay sin 
then the confession of the sin, what it does is it reveals man's humanity. It reveals our brokenness. That confession reveals our brokenness and helps us make a point that we, uh, that, that we, uh, that we, uh, uh, we see it in ourselves. But what reveals your true character is the willingness to confess that sin and then to endure the pain of what we follow. With David, you know, broken before him, Nathan lowers his voice a few decibels and continues speaking on God's behalf to to the anointed king. He says, yes, you have sinned, David, but the Lord has forgiven you, though though according, even even according to your own words, you deserve to die. The Lord is not going to kill you. However, this heart, you know, this half-relieved, half-sick David picks up his head and looks at Nathan. What's this however stuff? And he looks at Nathan, and Nathan's clearly uncomfortable with what he's about to say. And Nathan begins to speak again, and he says, however, your baby will die. Now, you know, there are some things in Scripture that are just hard to swallow, hard to hear, hard to read about. David would have offered up his own life at that point. He was was prepared to walk away from the throne. He was ready to confess his sin to the whole world, but but he was not ready to lose his baby, who was the, by the way, who was the only completely innocent person in the whole situation. That was was a proclamation from Nathan that uh, around which David just could not wrap his mind. Why would a baby die because of his father's sins? Now, David had spent much of his life trying to survive another day. Now he was, he was going to learn a terrible, terrible lesson. And this is the lesson. This is an important lesson for us. Nobody sins in a vacuum. What do I mean by that? It means when you sin, other people get hurt. Sin breaks hearts, it disappoints, uh, sin wounds people, it causes disease and disorder and confusion. Sin is never a victimless crime. It, you know, I know you've heard people say things, well, I'm only hurting myself. No, you're not. That's an absolute lie. There is, you are hurting people around you, whether you're willing to admit it or not. It has its consequences that go beyond your own sense of guilt and your own sense of grief. The people who die as a result of sin are not always the sinners. When someone takes a gun and and shoots another person in the heart and murders them, the person who died is not the one who committed the sin. Sin hurts other people. That's an extreme example, obviously. For David, everything is in motion now and nothing can stop it. The baby will die. Soon after Nathan leaves, the baby falls desperately ill. And for seven days, David prays and he fasts and he calls out to God. And I can just picture him with this father's heart crying out to God. It was me who sinned, Lord. Take me. Let the baby live. Don't take my baby, please. But the baby dies. And here's the harsh reality of sin. Something that we need to think about before we sin. You can repent of sin. You can be forgiven. But you may not always be able to alter the outcome. 
a boy that's being naughty can pick up a rock and think to himself how fun it would be to throw that rock and shatter a window on a house with it. And immediately after he throws the rock, he might think, oh no, oh no, I shouldn't have done that. God, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. Does God forgive him? Of course he does. Is God going to stop that rock in midair and drop it safely to the ground? Probably not. Scriptures say that that the palace staff was scared to be around the king during this pain-drenched time. They, they tiptoed around, afraid to mention the baby. David is weeping and fasting all the time and just frightened them. And when the baby died, they just knew that he was going to be inconsolable. They just knew that this was, this was going to be it. This is probably going to push David over the edge. This is going to be more than he can handle. But when the baby died, instead, David's reaction shocked him because he picked himself up off the ground. He bathed himself. He he changed his clothes and he went to the tabernacle to worship the Lord. After a year of hidden sin and, and dealing with his horrible guilt, followed by seven days of self-denial and desperate pleading for the life of his child, David had come to a moment where he could say, yes, I have sinned. It's all been exposed. Yes, I have suffered and my child has paid the ultimate price. Now the night is over. The morning can begin. It's time to start healing again. I'm going to wash my face and find God. At the end of this dreadful week, David's, or God's redemptive grace takes hold of David. And David returned to his wife Bathsheba and comforted her. And they, she became pregnant once again and at the birth of their son, whom, whom they named Solomon. Nathan arrived again, or at least sent a messenger. But this time his message was not a rebuke. He basically, this is the message and until you understand the meaning of it, you don't understand what was happening. Because the message from Nathan that he had received from God to tell to David was that he said, God will call your baby Jedediah. Did you know Solomon had another name? Not, named, not by humans, but a name given by God. Jedediah means beloved of the Lord. And, and, and that's, that name is not used anywhere else in Scripture. You know what was happening? God was sending a message to David saying, all right, now, you know, you, you've gone through this repentance. You've gone through the sin. You've seen the consequences of sin. And, and, and God is saying, I'm going to call this child Jedidiah, meaning beloved of the Lord. In other words, God's saying, you see, I still love you and I love this baby. Just because you had to walk through this does not mean I don't love you. And God showed David both his terrible judgment and his wonderful grace. And you know what? There's another place where God showed his terrible judgment and his wonderful grace, and that was at the cross. Because that's where both of them met. Because at the cross, is it, both of them, it is the ultimate expression of the judgment of God upon sin and the ultimate expression of his love and grace for, for mankind, all meeting in the same place. Someone once asked, uh, how do you know if a, per, if a man's repentance is genuine? It's David, I mean, you talk about an example of repentance, this is it. But how do you know if a man's repentance is, is genuine? Well, one good indication of sincerity is if the depth of the repentance matches the magnitude of their sin. 
You know, so like if I step on your toe, that's not a major, well, you know, depending on how much I weigh that day, it's not a major sin against you. And so I don't have to fall on my face with tears and weeping and saying, please forgive me for stepping on your toe. You know, a simple, oh, I'm so sorry. The depth of the, of the repentance matches the magnitude of the sin. But if, if, if I do something horrible to you and wound you and wound your family and, 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 and then I come to you, if I come to you and say, oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry about that and, and just real glib and walk away, that's not, you're, you know in that moment it's not repentance because the magnitude of the sin was so much greater than the repentance that, that I showed in your life. And, and you know, that person that you're trying to say, is it real repentance? Their repentance, it may not be as public as David's. That may not be required. General rule of thumb is if it's a public sin, public repentance needs to be uh, in place. But if it's a private sin, maybe, maybe that repentance is more individual between the two of you. But the depth, the, the deep soul brokenness of the repentance is the key. Which, by the way, I need to explain a little bit what we're talking about when we talk about repentance. Because sometimes we use words and we don't really understand what they mean. Repentance just doesn't mean that you just feel sorry for what you did. That, that's not it. That's the, that's the beginning part. Because you're not going to repent until you feel sorry for what you did. But it's more than that. Repentance literally means a change of mind. And a change of mind then leads to a change of action. So that means repentance is I'm walking one way, doing what I want. I'm sinning. I'm doing things the way I want them to be done. And I'm uh, not doing what, what God wants me to do. Repentance doesn't mean, God, I'm so sorry for walking this way. And then you keep walking. Repentance means, God, I'm so sorry for walking this way, I'm now going to turn around and change my mind, and now I agree with you that my way is wrong and your way is right, and I'm going to turn around and walk in a different direction. It's a change of the way, the way we think and a change of the way we act. That's what repentance really is. What could David do to show repentance on the same level as Nathan's public denunciation? I mean, his proclamation to David was public, and now the sin is public, and it's out there. So David's thinking, what can I do to make sure that my repentance is on this, uh, on the, the depth of my repentance matches the magnitude of my sin, because my sin was so great, my repentance needs to be great. Well, he couldn't take an ad out in the paper, you know. Jerusalem Times hadn't been invented yet. You know, a, a special, special sacrifice didn't seem right. Maybe he could abdicate the throne, but, but really God appointed David so he had no right to remove himself from the throne. And, and there was no such thing as impeachment at that time. How could David not only make his confession public, but also memorialize it in such a way that no one would ever forget what he did or how he repented? Well, David, the psalmist, he knew exactly what, what he needed to do. I picture him one day, he walks in and hands a piece of parchment to the chief musician, and he says, I've written a song, and I want you to get the choir together, and I want you to sing it for everybody. He said, I want you to get a huge crowd together for it. I want you to sing it to everybody. And the chief musician says, great, David, I love your songs. Let me see it. And he hands it to him, and he looks at it, and, and he reads from the parchment, and, he, and, and even as he reads the introduction, he looks up at David a little bit bewildered, and then he continues 
awkwardly to read the entire psalm before responding. And this is what David wrote. For the choir director, a psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Boy, there's no hiding there. He writes, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the, sin of my, the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night against you and you alone have I sinned. Which is by, really interesting that he should write that. He killed, he slept with Uriah's wife and killed him on the battlefield. Had him murdered. And David says, the real sin is not against Uriah. The real sin is against you, God. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. What was his judgment against him? His baby died. And David says, that was right. I'm not going to question your, your, your justness, God. I'm gonna, you, your decision, your judgment was just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me, now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a a right spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with faith on Zion and help her rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be sacrificed on your altar. Reading all that, the chief musician finally looks up at David and says, your majesty, we can't sing this. Everybody's going to know what this is about. We've all been willing to forget it. Can't we just do that? Can't we just forget it? Nobody's talking about Uriah anymore. Bathsheba is your wife. You have a beautiful baby boy. Can't we just leave this all behind? And David, the great king, this man after God's own heart, tells him authoritatively, he says, you will sing it. You will sing it every time I tell you to sing it. And when I'm dead and gone, I want you to keep singing it. I want my sin memorialized forever so that everyone will know what I did. More importantly, they will know of my repentance and they will know of the grace of God poured down on me despite my sin. And David left his chief musician with no choice. And 3,000 years later, just as David wished, people still read this rich, profound poem written by a broken but forgiven man and they were reminded of the depravity of man and the brokenness of man and the sinfulness of man but then they're also reminded of the unfathomable grace of almighty God and and they and they're reminded that if God can forgive David he can forgive me and there are three lessons from Psalm 51 about repentance that we'll close with tonight 
How many of you know that heartfelt apologies and true repentance, it's few and far between in life? You know, we, we get denials and lies and excuses and, and avoidance. And in the rare instance where an apology is actually issued, oftentimes it's, it's a half-hearted, well, I'm sorry if I offended you. Which doesn't take, you know, any ownership of their own actions. They're putting the blame on you. Well, you shouldn't have been offended. So I'm sorry if I offended you. But David's terrible, terrible sins are not forgiven, forgotten even 3,000 years later, mostly because he didn't want us to forget them. He committed murder and adultery, but his true character, his true heart is revealed not in his sin, but his true heart is revealed in the psalm that he wrote. His true heart is revealed in the repentance and the brokenness of heart that he had over his sin. And in this psalm, David gave us three specific lessons on what true repentance actually looks like. One, David memorialized his own sin so that it would be known by all who read, who read the Bible until the end of time. He said, I don't want anyone to ever forget what I did. He did not live in denial. He did not say, well, I've repented. Nobody else needs to know anything. He said, I want you to know I am a great sinner. And this really kind of leads us to another, uh, to the next one. But one way to say it is he owned his sin. Which is rare in today's culture, isn't it? It's always somebody else's fault. Well, if I did this and got put in jail, it's because my parents failed me. You know, if, if, if I could have had this given to me, then I wouldn't have done it. It's always somebody else's fault. Number two, David said, I have sinned. And this, this is why really that kind of is, is this idea. He, he said, I acknowledge my transgression. I want you to notice Psalm 51, what we read there, is all about David's sins. There's no mention of Uriah, how he, if he had just gone to sleep with his wife, every, that he would still be alive. There's no word about why Bathsheba was bathing naked on the rooftop for anyone else to see. In fact, she is not mentioned at all in the actual psalm. You know, sometimes we're, we use these phrases and people say, well, I'm sorry, but you just made me so angry. Well, that's not an apology. That's an accusation. Or, I'm sorry, but my, but my, my, my friend made me. That's, that's just a smokescreen. That's not an act of confession. Confession and repentance should be all about you and what you did. He didn't lay blame elsewhere. He didn't compare his sin to other people's sin. How many of you know people say, well, yeah, I did it, but it's not nearly as bad as what that person did. Well, you know, that's between them and God. It's not, it doesn't excuse your sin just because you think theirs is worse. You know, uh, uh, this is something I've, I've said before. I don't know if I've said it here, but you'll hear me say it again because these thoughts come to my mind and I'll repeat them over and over again because I can't remember when I said them and where I said them. So you'll, pretty soon you'll be able to say all the things with me. Uh, but just humor me and once in a while when I say it, just nod your head and say, that was good. That was good. And I'll feel better about myself. But... But one of the things I've, I've noticed is that when it comes to this idea of shifting blame and looking at other people's sins uh, and ignoring our own, you know, uh, we as Christians, when we get really upset at somebody else's sin, are you ready for this? When we get really upset at somebody else's sin, what we're really saying is, I'm angry because you sin differently than I do. Chew on that one for a while. 
Here's number three. Though David began his confession with the correct focus on his sins, he ended, ended it by turning the attention to God's grace. He said, I have sinned. I've done all these things. And he says, purify me from my sin. Remove the, the, the stain of my guilt. Restore me to, the joy of, uh, to me the joy of your salvation. Uh, you know, so much about David amazes us 3,000 years later. Uh, but maybe most amazing at all to me is David's grasp on the concept of grace because his theology of forgiveness and cleansing and renewal and repentance and grace is astonishingly New Testament in its language and its, and, and its tone. This is something you could read Psalm 51 and rephrase it a little bit, you know, and move it into the New Testament and you'd say, Paul wrote that about grace. 1,000 years before Jesus, David wrote as clear a statement of repentance and, and grace as there is in all of the New Testament. So who is this David that we have read about for 3,000 years? An adulterer? Yes. A murderer? Without question. David never refuted that. But was he also forgiven and redeemed and restored by God? Absolutely. And that is what gives us hope in the midst of our sin. You see, people talk about the Old Testament. They say, oh, wow, the Old Testament's so different. It's, there's just no grace. It's just an angry God. But that's, you're just not looking. You're not paying attention because right there you see God has always been a God of grace. He won't ignore sin. He doesn't wink at sin and pretend it doesn't exist. But if we will repent and confess and repent in his presence and we, will, and we will turn our back on our old ways and walk in his ways, he has always been willing to forgive and offer grace. And now through Jesus, that grace has been bought and paid for. Our sins have been, have been paid for. The wrath of God that I deserve has been poured out on him. And the righteousness that Jesus had has now been given to me. That's a mystery. Paul said it. It's a mystery. And if God forgave David, I know he'll forgive me. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for including the, um, the bad side of David in his story. Because Lord, if you hadn't put this episode and his failings in there, I would look at David and think, I can never be like that. I may as well give up. Why even bother trying? But Lord, I look at men like David, men like Peter in the New Testament, men who failed greatly, and yet in their failure, you still embrace them in their failure, you still called them, them to repentance and you never stopped loving them and you forgave them and you put their feet back on the right path and you used them to do th great things after their sin. And Lord, when I read that, that gives me so much joy, and so much hope because I know, Lord God, if you did it for them, you'll do it for me. So, Lord, I just pray that as we move forward, as we approach this new year, that we would be people of grace. Lord, that we will be people who 
we don't walk in judgment. We, we're not afraid to speak the truth. But Lord God, we want the love of Christ to be seen in that we want people to know that, yes, we are, we are broken, terrible sinners, but Christ still loves us and there's still forgiveness. There's a different way. There's a better way. And we can all be children of God if we'll repent. So, Lord, I just pray you'd help us to walk in that grace. Make us billboards of your grace. Let everybody around us, let us not try to hide our past brokenness and sinfulness, but God, may we, may, we be, uh, may we own that the way David did so that people will say, that's who you were? And we say, yes, but now I have been forgiven and the grace of God has made me clean and now I'm a new person. And may we be walking billboards of the grace of God that's been poured out on our lives. And use that, Lord God, to ignite a, a hunger in the lives of people around us to say that is what I need. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.